The Women in Agile podcast series amplifies the voices of outstanding women in the Agile community. We are dedicated to sharing the wisdom and inspiration our community has to offer by telling our stories, being thought leaders, and having open conversations with our allies. This series is brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. I'm your host, Leslie Morse, and today we are chatting with Portia Tung. Portia is an executive Agile coach, executive personal coach, and researcher of play. She is a keynote speaker at the Agile 2019 conference, author of the book, The Dream Team Nightmare, and founder of the School of Play, which is dedicated to promoting happier adulthood through lifelong play. Portia, thanks for making time to talk to us today. I appreciate it. Lovely to be here, Leslie. Yeah, the um, the this whole idea of play, uh, I think, is is huge. We've had uh, agile amped episodes about this. I know it's been a thread of conversation, not only around gamifying the workplace, but in lots of ways that we facilitate right agile training courses and agile workshops and right try to build agile teams together. So, you know you're an executive agile coach and obviously you're doing work in the agile space, but I'm always really curious about how did you find agile in the first place? What was that story like for you? Yeah, I guess it was a case of being born at the right time in the right place. <laughs> if you like, I started, um, working in the dot com days, right? Um, so in the nineties and what that really meant was, you know, um, Agile was really just coming in. Um, I was new to programming. And um, the first time I came across Agile was uh, through extreme programming um, via a game called uh, the XP game created by mm -hmm. a pair of lovely Belgians um, called uh, Pascal van Kaunberghe and Vera Peters. Um, so I got to know them a little bit. And after playing their game, the XP game, it's available online, xpgame.be. I learned about how, you know, collaboration and agile worked. And after that, I, I really couldn't turn back, you know, I thought, wow, this is a great way of, you know, creating valuable software whilst having a good time with your colleagues. Um, so I was bitten by the play bug then, if you like. Yeah. So and it was it's my, sort of like yeah. the agile and the play piece all together, it sounds like. Yeah. Yes. And that, that was such a happy coincidence because you know, with Pascal and Vera's work, they were really the first people, I think, um, to really gamify Agile and for that to be, if okay. you like, legitimate because they were presenting um, at XP Days London, um, you know, decades ago now. And I think they just recently invented the game. And then I happened to go along to the conference and play that game. And it was so enlightening because people realized, actually, you know what, it's okay for work to be fun. And actually play can really help facilitate learning. Well, so, so we spend, if we look at our, our adult lives, we spend more hours at work than we do with our families and our friends and all of that. So why wouldn't we want that large, largest percentage of our time in our adult lives to be something that's fun? It's kind of like, well, duh, of course we would want it to be that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of traces back to the industrial revolution, right? You know, we started mm -hmm. looking at how we can optimize creating, I think at first it might have been value, right? And then it was looking at, you know, generating money. And then it was looking at 
how can we get more productivity out of human beings, fellow human beings, no less. And we kind of squeezed out the fun out of work. And what's really interesting in my research on play was that, you know, I'm actually, uh, I was born in Hong Kong. So if you like, I'm of, you know, Chinese origin, even though I'm British. And I read in this book called Living Organizations that actually, if you look at the word business in Cantonese, it is um, sang yi, which means meaning of life. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So when I came across that kind of literal translation, I was like, goodness me, it's encoded already (laughs) by the ancients, like so many of these things, but somehow we've managed to overlook it completely. Yeah. There's, um, you know, it, it brings a whole new light to this. Uh, you think about Simon Sinek and start with why, and the idea of transcendent purpose, right? With that definition of what business is, it, it makes purpose seem even more important to me. Absolutely. And with play, um, the nice thing is a lot of people think, you know, what do you think the opposite of play is, Leslie? Um, Any guesses? Well, I was going to say, I don't even know as though I could quantify something as being the opposite of play. I can think about the absence of play, mm. but not necessarily the opposite of it. Um because play, to me at least, is in some ways a mindset and a freedom and a lightness that you bring to your work. Um, so mm. when there's an absence of that to me, then it doesn't feel as much like play. Now, you can deliberately structure and facilitate things that are more like play and games. But I don't think that that's necessarily 100% required to be in, if I use quotation Marks, you know, a mindset of play, if that makes any Hmm. sense. Yeah, sure. Um, So I came across play through um, Dr. Stuart Brown, who is Mm -hmm. a a play researcher and um, psychologist. And he gives a talk on TED as well in a book called titled Play. Um, And he says that, you know, the opposite of play isn't work, right? Because work actually gives us leads to creativity and innovation. It gives us a sense of purpose and it provides opportunity for us to develop our competencies. And he says, actually, the opposite play of play is depression. Now, he doesn't mean like the capital D depression, but it could easily mean, you know, ennui, not wanting to get to work, feeling bored, not jumping out of bed, you know, (laughs) in the morning when you have to go and do the slog again, right? And I think yeah. that's really interesting. And if you like shocking, a wake-up call to the importance of play. Yeah, when I think that's the, I, I'm, the way you phrased it is is so much better there because I think that's the essence of what I was going for. Because it's like to me in some mm. ways, play is a meta skill or a spell you cast in any mm-hmm. given sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I think it is a mindset. Um, so I think something like improv really mm-hmm. opens the gateway to play very easily. And there's so many, you know, parallels between improv and, and playfulness and play because, you know, uh, improv artists make an offer, if you like. It's an invitation to play. And what I find often after people kind of realize I'm a play researcher and have heard my talks, they go, oh, you know, that sounds great, Portia. How do I make my team play more? Uh, and usually they say this with enthusiasm, but their arms are crossed themselves. And, you know, I think, oh, well, unless you change yourself and become more playful, 
no one's really going to want to play with you. And yeah, that's and where the can... improv element comes from, doesn't it? You know, we have yeah. to issue an offer or an invitation. And then in return, if someone accepts, then you start the dance. But you certainly yeah, can't you force make... people to play. Yeah, you don't make anyone play, right? You can invite them to play, but that's yeah. of their own decision as to whether or not they want to play along. And I think what's curious with this kind of popularization of play in work culture, it's gone a little bit the same way that I've seen Agile go, you know, over the years, um, which is we take it a little bit too seriously and we mm -hmm. might be focusing on the wrong goals. What do I mean by that? So, you know, last year when I was presenting at conferences, I started hearing tweets about um, we must make play compulsory. Oh. <laughs> and... That kind of indicates the understanding of people and what it means to play, right? Because if you're forced to play, then that's not that's punishment, not play. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's the danger when you have thought leaders saying these things. And it was very much a, similar to the agile journey. I, you know, I've had today when people might become passionate about something and maybe very well intentioned, but nonetheless, they're so prescriptive and directive that there's actually no room to breathe. Yeah, when this right, you think about team building sort of activities and, and things that are designed around team building and that fine line between it truly kind of building the cohesiveness and connection of a team versus being forced family fun. Um, and I think right, <laughs> forced family fun, love that. <laughs> yeah, and that's what play Indeed. play can kind of go the same way. Oh, absolutely, and I think this is why play is so rich. I guess it's um, it's like a healthy chocolate cake. You know, there's so many um, aspects and different things you can sprinkle on it, but it's really understanding that people have different learning styles. They have different learning play preferences. They have, um, you know, different play histories and actually everyone plays differently. So there is no stereotype on play. Um, so I don't know if you know, Leslie, but there are, you know, over 70 um, definitions of intelligence, right? because the experts can't agree on a single one. And yet we expect right. there to be, you know, one definitive definition of play. And the fact is there is no stereotype and what's play to one person might be torture for another. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, that completely makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. So when you talked, you've said Portia here a couple of times about, right, digging into researching play. So if you go right back to that story you were telling us and in the 90s and dot com and playing the XP game, right? When was it that you really realized that kind of being fascinated by the idea of play versus it becoming something that you were really getting serious about and starting to research it? You know, I think it was when my little girl was born. Okay. So that's almost seven years ago now. Um, and so having played for the past 20 years in my agile career, if you like, I felt relatively comfortable with play because that was the way I facilitated. That was the way I ran training. So I felt comfortable playing with adults in a work environment. Um, it wasn't that I was smug about this, but <laughs> when my little girl was born, um, I met my match because I read in, you know, there's so many parenting books one wants to read just to get to grips with this new craft of parenting. And then I read this sentence, which really changed a lot for me. And that was, we can't give what we don't have. Mm, we can't give what we don't have. 
I really yeah. like that. In fact, that is that is something I needed to hear today, given some things going on for me in life and at work. So thank you for that gift. There's, um, will you say it for us one more time? Yeah, we can't give what we don't have. Tell me more about that and why that was a pivotal statement for you. Yeah, that sort of made me realize that, that actually, whilst I, I had learned to play in a work environment, I didn't really understand what play was. It helped me recognize that I hadn't played enough in my own childhood. And that's why I struggled being a new mother and continue to, you know, it's a, it's a day, it's an everyday challenge. And for me, parenting is, you know, the ultimate test of personal agility. <laughs> and with playing with my little girl, she, you know, it's so quickly they let you know it's instant feedback, right? There's no politeness um, right. like adults might try to do. Um, they instinct, you know, they instantly let you know if they're bored, they're yep. disinterested, they don't like your game, they want to play something else, right? And mm -hmm. to have that kind of level of feedback so visceral and instantaneous from this creature that you hope would love you automatically as you would love them, I mean, it's all very. Um, uh, emotional as a journey and it made me realize how deep play is because one of the things we have in um, England is something called Marmite right it's this kind of yeast extract spread you could put on bread etc and we always say people have you know they either love Marmite or they hate it and as I was kind of starting to delve into play research you know independently I noticed that when people heard me talk about play or heard that I was a play researcher they'd have one of two um, responses. The first one would be great. When, you know, when are you running your next session? I want to be there and bring my friends or the other one, which is there's nothing wrong with me. Why are you talking to me about play? I'm perfectly mm -hmm. fine and healthy. Go away. It's definitely an edge that people need to cross into, in order to be like, you know, Oh, that play that's for other people. Um, and the willingness to kind of accept that invitation um, is different for everyone. So do you notice some of like, what are some of the qualities around having that conversation with those people that are like in that latter category? Yeah. So through observing plenty, you know, thousands of adults play in various contexts, um, I've identified five key characteristics of what I would describe as a playful leader Okay. Um, and some of these might come as a surprise. So the first one is respectful. All so right. I call these playmakers as well, you know, playful leaders, playmakers. Um, so they're naturally respectful. They're considerate of others, considerate of the situation, you know, always asking for permission. Um, so that was remarkable for me. I mm -hmm. never expected play to be respectful um, because of what I'd heard in the media, <laughs> what I'd read in books and thought, well, you know, if play is just for children, then that's going to be noisy. It's going to be messy. Um, you know, it's all out of control. But no, play is so respectful. And it helps me see now when I, with that new lens, watch children play. You can see that. And when that line of respect is crossed, where there's no longer mutual respect, then, you know, the play disappears and it changes yeah, into something else or they play a different game. Yeah. It makes me think about the idea of like sportsmanship, right? 
and, and athletes and people that play team sports, it is right. Sportsmanship is under, has an underlying concept of respect and a value of respect for your opponent. Um, because I do think that's really foundational for making the whole game or aspect of play work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and Dr. Brown defines true play as fair play, safe play, and being a good sport. Mm-hmm. And then the second characteristic is resourceful. Okay. And this is why I'm so excited with this idea of, you know, playful leadership, especially with the agile community and, and techies, because, you know, people who are technically minded or, you know, scientifically, logically minded, they are naturally problem solvers all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And I think human beings instinctively are problem solvers too until that's, you know, um, discouraged as we grow up. And the, I love going to techie conferences, for example, because if you have a problem, you can, you know, bet your bottom dollar that there's someone probably next to you who has an answer. And there's almost no problem they cannot solve. And incidentally, their resourcefulness is also a key indication of hopeful thinking. Because yeah, when I being think- hopeful is about having options, you know, not giving mm-hmm. up, perseverance. Yeah, so it was just a really delightful discovery about resourcefulness yeah. in play. Yeah, when I there's the the lens that I think about that is this idea of right, is it really problem solving, right? Because there's right that implies that something is actually a problem. Versus when I think about resourcefulness, um, there's just the aspect of natural curiosity, right, mm-hmm. that exists within children in a different way than adults because they're just encountering so much more stuff for the first time, right? And so that natural resourcefulness and right complete blank slate of curiosity about what is this thing around me and how do I manipulate it and how do I interact with it? They don't have these preconceived notions about what could or could not be done and should or should not be done um, in a way that gives freedom of resourcefulness in ways that I think we lose the further we get into our lives. Indeed, Leslie. And I think, you know, you've highlighted there that actually children don't see things as problems. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you probably have to explain to a child what the word problem means, even though you yeah. might see attributes of what we would label as problem solving. You know, for them, it's challenges, right? It's figuring out things that they really, how, how are they going to open that cookie jar with just one hand? Yeah, you know? when there's, there's something <laughs> you know, really interesting problems, but challenges yeah. really. Yeah, if there's a, um, it kind of is an annoyance for me when people like you like, oh, we've got this issue. And they're like, oh, it's not an issue. It's an opportunity. And I'm like, no, it's a, it's an issue. This is not an opportunity. And that sort of like, you know, just because we call it something different makes it somehow (laughs) better or whatever. But there is Mm. something to this idea of removing that mental and in many ways, I would say subconscious constraint of this is a problem that has to be solved that may in, in and of itself allow for more play to happen. Absolutely. And I realize I'm getting I you mean, off track of your five. <laughs> no, no, but I think, you know, I think all play involves some call, some form of so-called problem solving, right? It's got to be a challenge. It's got to, you know, stretch you possibly to the edge or beyond your comfort zone because that's why we want to do it, right? That's innate mm-hmm. in human nature to want to have something difficult to overcome. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've had respect and resourcefulness. Oh. oh, responsible. Okay. So we've got an R theme going on here. Indeed. Good spot. Yeah. Um, so the third one's responsible. 
Um, and I think I was on the lookout for this anyway, because, you know, I was taken by Christopher Avery's work on the responsibility process and all that for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I was delighted that as I was observing, you know, these playful adults, that they would make sure that the trash was taken out in the team space. They would make sure the whiteboards were cleaned. They would make sure that there were always, you know, pens that worked and blue tack available for the teams. Um, and often these are team members. They don't have to be, you know, specially anointed scrum masters or leaders. These were people that just cracked on, got the job done and made sure that everyone was having a good time. So mm-hmm. responsible and in particular, personal responsibility, not just group responsibility. I like that. Definitely important. Do we keep on the R theme as we go through the list? Indeed. There's two more left. Great. (laughs) (laughs) So the fourth one, um, which again is, all these surprised me because they were very adult words, Leslie, to describe Mm -hmm. something that a lot of people assume is only in the domain of the child, which I think has increased my respect and understanding of children so much more tangibly than, you know, anything before. So the fourth letter R, uh, the fourth word is resilient. All right. So when we experience true play, it not only nurtures our development, it actually helps us heal. So an example of this is think of a a relationship you might have with uh, an individual who might be a little bit wrought and difficult because of, I don't know, uh, work challenges or an existing relationship you've had with them, right? Um, But actually, if you were able to play a game with them, which is completely not to do with work, and it might be a card game, it might be a board game, but just for five, 10 minutes, that completely resets both your brains, if you were truly playing, Mm -hmm. about how your relationship can be. And I've seen this among family members, yeah, myself included, which when we're so used to seeing people and interacting with them day in, day out, you know, it becomes a standard thing and we're no longer, you know, sensitive to them, their needs and our needs. And so we just end up doing, you know, a uh, uh, usual dance of, you know, dissatisfaction with each other. Mm-hmm. But when we do something else like a game, like I said, true play is fair play, safe play and being good sport. You know, there are these new rules, right? And the nice thing with play as well, which is, I think, personally, very magical, is that it gets you into flow, so, you know, uh, Chick Mahai, who wrote the book on flow, he got into that through play and what he was observing through people who were, you know, sports people, etc. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that play was a key aspect of flow. And what I'm seeing is that actually play is a catalyst into flow and it also enables you to maintain flow. And when I say resilient, what happens is if, you know, there's a disruption to, you know, your world domination plan to be a peacemaker, that's not too much of a, <laughs> an opposite, um, you have to kind of keep going and stay hopeful, very much like as an agile change agent, right? So you learn to figure out um, your emotional intelligence, you learn about self-care, you learn how to come up with options, and you come up with strategies to become more resilient. So I think that was a remarkable fourth R for me. Yeah, and I, I love how it's um, it really brings in the relationship angle of it. Um, because it's, it, I wasn't expecting, like you kind of threw me for a twist there when you started talking about, it's like, it changes the relationship that you're in with the other person. It, to me, I got this sense of, um, kind of removing some of the pretense around how you expect someone to show up all of the time and, and 
creates more of just a human connection. And is, is that the Absolutely. right interpretation? Yeah. And, you know, thanks to neuroscience, because historically we've had, you know, psychology, psychotherapy, all these other sort of different types of scientists, sciences, if you like. You know, now we have neuroscience, which proves that when you are curious, as you've mentioned, when you're curious, i.e. in play, you cannot judge yourself or others because you're purely in flow, which means you can't feel resentment or envy right? And you won't beat yourself up so much if you're not winning the game because all you're trying to do is play the game. Yeah. When this, it's interesting that you talk, you bring in the neuroscience angle of it, because as you were, I was listening to you describing, I almost had this visual of, you know, I'm in work mode and right the synapses are firing the ways they know to fire. And if this, then that go do here, this, you know, kind of all these <laughs> things. And then all of a sudden, when I think about the idea of play, I'm like, well, I'm looking at something I may not have experienced before. I need to tap into everything in my brain. So it was like, instead of these like point A to point B things firing, it was like my whole visual of the brain lighting up and unlocking of potential that happens Absolutely. in play. Yeah. And you know what? That reminds me of a, a visual of how mindfulness and meditation works, right? So I often describe play, you know, as the magic that reaches other parts of your body and brain that beer can never reach. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the last... that's, that's a great way to describe it. <laughs> um, the last R is, um, do, you, do you remember the Velveteen Rabbit as a child? I do. Yeah. So, you know, that's a story about, um, you know, a stuffed toy rabbit who hoped that if they were loved enough by their child, that uh, the child owner, um, that they would one day become real. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's that whole kind of notion of what does real really mean? That tension throughout the whole book. And yes. um, that's what I discovered that actually with people who are truly playful, they are real. And I can sense that with you, Leslie, even, even through our conversation that it's not about, you know, putting on a mask and a persona and I have a work persona as opposed to, you know, an outdoor uh, out of work persona versus a family one, et cetera. Right. It's just mm -hmm. like you say, showing up and bringing your whole self. Yeah. That authenticity. Know, being courageous to do that. Yeah. So the fourth, fifth R is real. That's great. So we've got respectful, resourceful, responsible, resilient, and real. And I make up that if people are, are missing your keynote at Agile 2019, this is probably the backbone of some of the things, right, that, that they're not getting to hear. What else about, right, that message of play outside of these sort of five aspects? Because what I appreciate is, you know, some people can be like, oh, and here's the five things and they kind of give a list. But the way you engage hmm. and describe these five makes it so much more palpable. Um, like, it's like, I feel like I understand now in a way that, that I, I didn't, you know, 25 minutes ago when we started chatting. Yeah. So I guess another point I'd say, Leslie, then, is that every moment is a chance to change. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's come from me observing and experiencing change within myself, but also as a, an organizational change um, agent. And, you know, when people talk about change and, you know, how it's so difficult and I have so <laughs> much resistance at work when I'm trying to introduce these great ideas... Um, yeah. I can only imagine the look on your face. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, it's more, um, 
that it doesn't need to be full of pain and suffering. Yeah. You know? um, and my personal story with play as well is, you know, after my little girl was born, I, you know, over time I discovered I had two chronic conditions that I had to learn to manage rapidly, uh, one of which I had to diagnose myself because the experts couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to my brain, I was like having a life and death moment twice um, over, the, you know, over two, three years. And that really kind of put life into perspective as well. And it made me realize that actually that isn't the way to do change. No wonder it's not sustainable and no wonder so many agile coaches are burning out. There must be something else. And that, you know, led me to doing um, uh, training in coaching as in becoming a trained coach and really understand the change cycle experience for myself, um, constantly challenging myself in terms of how I'm changing and how I want to change. And we, when we recognize that change happens through play in a nurturing, healing, you know, invitation way, I don't see resistance anymore. That's not to say that the resistance isn't there, but I don't see it like the way adults see problems, right? As we talked about earlier, as mm-hmm. problems or resistance. I'm like, ah, so you're asking me like, you know, 10 questions after my keynote talk because you sound like a, a cynic of play, right? That's what a judgmental person would probably think about. But for me, I'm like, great, you're a play skeptic. That makes <laughs> you a scully for me out of X-Files. So let's play and explore what that really means. And I learned so much more from those conversations. And um, I, I just don't think change needs to be full of pain and suffering. Pain possibly, but you know, even suffering is the way we handle pain. So mm-hmm. again, it's very about, you know, having a growth mindset, like Carol Dweck says, and um, figuring out what works for us, but also what works for the other person. Yeah, I love that. You, you mentioned, right, the um, going through and that calling to go get professional coach training. Are there any other kind of pivotal moments from your, you know, your story and your journey that have shaped how you show up as a leader and what your coaching stance is today? Yeah, absolutely, Leslie. Since we're all friends now, um, (laughs) I actually retired from Agile, I don't know, maybe six, seven years ago. Okay. Um, And when I didn't realize I'd quite retired. And what did I mean by that? And it was because what I was seeing in the agile community at large was that it was becoming increasingly commercialized mm-hmm. um, and that there was little to no quality assessment, if you like, um, in terms of what people calling themselves agile coaches or agile experts were doing. And I could also see the devastation as a result because typically I'd be called in afterwards, yep. right, um, to address uh, the discontent and disappointment and hopelessness that people were now flung into, right? Because they were promised collaboration and promised joy at work. But in fact, you know, their agile coach came in and dictated everything and then ran away because they felt that they weren't loved enough by their teams. Yeah, you know? it's, um, um, it's an unfortunate, um, I guess, thing that happens through the maturation of an industry, if I put quotation fingers absolutely. on it, that those, yeah. it's, it's, it's good and bad. The question is, as a larger agile community, how do we respond to it? Um, and so even though you may have retired from agile a while back, I love that you're still here and part of the conversation. Well, you see, then what happened was after I trained as a coach, and the reason I trained as a coach was I was about to give up on agile, agile coaching altogether. 
maybe, you know, changing careers. And I thought to myself, let's give coach, the coaching bit of my agile coach title, mm-hmm. a bit more of a, a go and look into that. And when I trained as a coach, I realized what agile coaching could really be. So if we look at, you know, how many people do agile coaching, I think it's fine because they teach it more like football coaching. You know, they're a subject Mm -hmm. matter expert. That's great. And they might know, they might have some coaching skills. Fantastic. And they might use them and that will work too. But what the difference between for me now a trained coach is I really understand what these five R's, right, uh, mean as a playful leader and to be respectful when you're coaching someone else, it requires you to have such a great sense of um, self-awareness mm-hmm. and personal responsibility that you have for this person, you know, who you are inviting to trust you, right? And yeah. to, you know, reveal their their challenges with you so that together you can solve it. So it's really, it, it in turn actually has helped professionalize my agile coaching. It's made it uh, much more fun for me. Um, and as a result, fun for others as well. So I've actually come out of agile retirement and therefore <laughs> I was delighted to be invited to keynote at agile 2019. Cause it was almost like, you know, the universe's way of saying, welcome back. Yes. Yeah. It's a, a universal signal for sure. For sure. And I think <laughs> the, the, the thing about the word coach there, and, and I think that, that we could record an entire episode around just this topic, around how coaching shows up and our use of this, this word in our, in our industry, um, is, is so important. Like you started us off with the, the translation of the word business. Um, and so I had the luxury of spending some time with, uh, Marita Frijan, uh, from CRR global, right. One of the the founders of the Orsk coaching methodology. And she introduced Mm. me to the purest definition of the word coach, um, Mm -hmm. which was, uh, a vehicle that transports a very important person from where they are now to where they want to be. And I just thought, mm-hmm. right, is, you know, that's that, you know, the idea of a coach that is pulled by, right, horses to transport someone. But when you apply that to this idea of being, you know, a professional coach and that idea of respect and holding that person and that client, whether that client be an individual or that client being the relationship of the team or the system that you're working with as that mm-hmm. very important person that is somewhere and it is where they want to go not where you want them to go. That is, that is a, exactly. an important distinction. Yeah. And so that's why it ties nicely with the, you know, five R's because respectful is so important mm-hmm. in that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Portia, thank you for making this time before we wrap up, you know, any sort of final inspiration or wisdom that you want to leave folks with today? Yeah. So I like to, um, play with my six and a half year old by asking her profound questions about life. So the other day I'd said to her, you know, darling, what stops us from changing? You know, I like to do live research. And she looks at me and I can tell she's her, got her thinking face on, you know, mm-hmm. um, a bit like her daddy. So I'm counting seconds in my head, just waiting uh, for the cogs to turn and, and process. And um, she looks at me and with, you know, curiosity and she says, nothing. Yes, <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> so that got me really thinking. Oh my goodness! Yeah. You know, we've got these wonderful books on, you know, the power of habit. We've got growth mindset. We've got flow. We've got all these 
right? Imagined realities, which are concepts mm-hmm. uh, that have helped, you know, designed to help adults overcome this thing, which is supposed to be stopping us. And it might even be the bogeyman, yeah. but children know there's nothing stopping them from changing. And then I said to her, I said, well, in that case, what helps you change? And then she looks at me again and um, with a big smile, she said, be myself, mummy. Oh, and I this is that. why I'm so delighted with play because it encapsulates all the wisdom that, if you like, humanity has intuited and you know experienced throughout our existence, and that's why it's so important to look after it and to respect it and make sure we don't just commercialize it um, and exploit it as though it was something to sell, right? It's really about restoring our own humanity and it's a way of finding, you know, finding our way back to ourselves individually and as a group. Yeah, I love that. What what prevents you from changing? Nothing. What helps you change? Being myself. That's That's perfect. So if I had one... One suggestion then uh, for people who wish to get in touch with their playful selves is to um, borrow a child and take them to go <laughs> see their favorite film over the summer. <laughs> All right. Or if you're an auntie and uncle, you know, go with your niece and nephews or take your child, but get them to choose it and, mm-hmm. you know, do it their way. Um, but also, a similar suggestion, and that's why I count it as one, is to go spend time with people who are retired or elderly. Because they have so much more time to, you know, um, smell the flowers mm-hmm. while they're still living. You know, feel the wind in their hair. Yeah, I love those that's exactly the same as spending time with children. Yeah, I love that. Portia, thank you so much for having this conversation today. Uh, I, I, as I said before, like you said a couple things I really needed to hear. And if I needed to hear it, the odds are one of our other listeners did too. We covered a lot of ground and I see opportunities for many, many more conversations that we could have. So, um, thank you. I feel really honored to have been part of this just chat with you today. Lovely. Thank you for your time, Leslie. Thank you for playing. Yes, you're welcome. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. It is brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile nonprofit organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. We hope you've learned something new, learned how to play, and we invite you to tell a friend or coworker about the podcast. Please go online to womeninagile.org to learn more about our initiatives and find more inspiring podcast conversations. Thanks for listening to this Women in Agile podcast episode. Find more inspiring conversations by visiting womeninagile.org slash podcast, checking out the podcast series on iTunes, or visiting your podcast application of choice. If you have an idea for a topic, speaker, or feedback on an episode, please reach out to us via email through podcast at womeninagile.org.